So welcome back again to the second part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Kelly. Today we continue with uh, reflections uh, on prayer from the community of Glenstall Abbey. To start with, Father Martin leads us in a reflection on praying the Psalms. And after listening to Melinda Dimitrescu playing Bless the Lord My Soul, we can then listen to Brother Jerick who reflects with us on Lectio Divina. We're listening to a podcast from Glenstall Abbey. The book of Psalms can sometimes seem like a bit of an oddity. It's part of the collection of books which Christians and Jews alike reverence as the word of God to his people, the Bible. But on many levels it appears to be the opposite of that. It seems much more about God's people speaking or singing, sometimes shouting, their words to God. The Psalter is, to a large extent, a book of prayers, and in it the communication seems to be in a different direction to what you would expect of the Word of God. It's about human words to God rather than God's words to humanity in some ways. And this Jewish prayer book has provided the basis for daily prayer throughout Christian history too. It is, of course, the core of our prayer in the monastery when we gather to pray together several times each day. Christians have always heard in the Psalms the voice of Christ himself. According to St. Augustine, there can hardly be found any words in the Psalms which are not the words of Christ and his Church, whether of Christ alone or of the Church alone. And the Bible itself gives some justification for reading the Psalms like this. For example, in Luke's Gospel, the words of Jesus when he appeared to his disciples on the evening of his resurrection are quite striking. Everything written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's clear that Luke's understanding is that Jesus did see himself in the words of the Psalms. Perhaps the best Example of the use of the Psalms in the Gospels is Psalm 21, which is sung at Mass on Palm Sunday. The first line of this psalm is placed on the lips of Jesus at the moment of his death in both Matthew's and Mark's Gospels. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are allusions to other verses from this psalm in other parts of the Passion stories too. For example, in Matthew, the account of the chief priests and scribes and elders mocking the crucified Jesus quotes verse 9 of this psalm. He trusted in the Lord, let him save him. Let him release him if this is his friend. And in both Mark and John, the account of the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes echoes verse 19 of the same psalm. They divide my clothing among them. They cast lots for my robe. Many of the psalms contain very stark images. For instance, that Psalm 21 that we've just mentioned accuses God of desertion. And there are several psalms that actually wish bloody suffering on the psalmist's enemies. Pretty rough stuff. Actually praying some of these texts could present serious problems for some Christians. Maybe we should just ignore those bits. But I'm not sure we should, even though I'm sometimes embarrassed by them. We're embarrassed by texts like this because they dent and crack the lovely edifices with which we surround our praying 
but maybe these edifices and masks need to be cracked. If we're honest, we don't like to admit normally that people who worship God are really like that, that they really do get angry with God sometimes, that they really do despair sometimes, that they really are vengeful sometimes. But we all know that believers really do all these things a lot of the time, and not just other believers either. We all have our moments. It seems to me that the most important thing to point out about some of the more angry or depressed Psalms is that they are, well, they're something. They're, they're not nothing. They're not mute disconnection from God. Communication with the Lord is still open. The Psalmist may be moaning, but he hasn't given up. He may be saying horrible things to God, but he's still saying something. Even in the deepest of personal tragedy, he believes that despite seeming absent, God is really present and is really listening. And that's a powerful message for us as we pray with these words. And so if we are suffering or are praying for someone who is suffering or about a situation of hardship or difficulty somewhere in the world or to, uh, connected with somebody we know, praying with these kinds of psalms is actually an act of faith. The words may be harsh, but they acknowledge that the world is not as it should be. And more importantly, they trust that it's appropriate, it's okay to bring our concerns to God, to bring our anxieties and our true feelings to God in prayer, rather than pretending that everything is perfect. I was struck by a line I read by one scholar about the Psalms. In Israel's prayer, he says, Everything is said, and God is known to be strong enough and willing to hear. Psalms, another writer says, often take us to places we do not wish to go, into the desert, into solidarity with the oppressed and the abandoned, into the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, and into luminous expanses of praise and blessings. They're a precious gift and a school of prayer giving us words to speak to God in every circumstance.
You're listening to a podcast from Glenstone Abbey. In chapter 48 of his rule, St. Benedict advises his monks on how to spend their day most fruitfully. He points to the importance of manual work, but he also tells them how many hours during the day they should devote to the Lectio Divina, which we can render by the phrase divine reading. As prescribed by Benedict, the Lectio should vary through the year from around two hours up to almost the whole day. Since every Sunday, the monk should devote all the leisure time to the practice of Lectio. But what was the Lectio, you may ask? What did Benedict mean by it? First of all, we need to remember that monks were avid readers of scriptural texts. To the mind of Benedict, this was the natural habitat, and it was during the office in choir that the monks entered the reality of the scriptures. Importantly, they were advised to do this with understanding. Readings from both the Old and New Testaments were also delivered in the oratory for everyone to listen to. Some of them recited by heart, which shows how familiar the monks were with these texts. But that wasn't enough. If someone was not sufficiently acquainted with the Psalter, they were required to improve their knowledge and understanding of this text. But the real task put before everyone was to continually absorb the Word of God and the writings of the Fathers which commented on it. Every day, the monks were supposed to devote many hours to getting to know God through his words. What can we learn from the monastic tradition today? What could our Lectio Divina be like if we were to imitate the monks? First of all, reading the scriptures would have to become a priority in our spiritual life. If this were the case, we would to have at our disposal, however busy we may be, at least an hour to simply sit down, read and meditate on the divine words. But this is only a start. What really matters is the way we do it. We have to approach our Lectio with a firm belief in the truthfulness of the divine message. We will also have to make full use of our mental faculties. If we just read the sacred texts 
without actually employing the potentiality of our mind, without a serious attempt at understanding what God has to say to us, then the time spent on it will be almost futile. Putting in very crudely, the clear message we inherit from the monastic tradition is that the best reading and meditation involves a very active work of our mind. Only in this way can we grasp the riches of the divine logic concealed in the words of the scriptures. And our prayer afterwards will be filled with the warmth of love for God. Thank you.